There is something really triggering about a thin white woman carrying a dog around like it's a purse. Coming live to you from the WWEN Weather Centre, I am Luke Kane. I am here, as always, with Damien Heath. Hello. And Cassandra Kane. Hello. How are we? Good, thank you. Glad to be joining you in the Weather Centre. This month we're going to be looking at Gus Van Sant's 1995 mockumentary sort of kind of movie to die for. Suzanne would do anything to be famous. Gonna be the next Barbara Walters. I believe that Mr. Gorbachev, you know the man who ran Russia for so long. I believe that he would still be in power today if he'd had that big purple thing taken off his forehead. To be on television. You're not anybody in America unless you're on TV. Was a chance she would die for. You're on. Good evening from the WWEN Weather Center. Weather Center. Have any of you actually ever been on television before? To be a star. You've got to be able to do things that ordinary people wouldn't do. Was the opportunity she would kill for. (sighs) Okay. (laughs) And that's exactly what she did. I don't think I need to tell you that today was a hot one. With just a slight chill in the air. Three. Nothing is gonna stop her. Two. Did you get the gun? Yeah. One. Columbia Pictures welcomes you to the real America. Suzanne, did you get those kids to kill your husband? Where criminals get to be celebrities. It was on First Edition and American Justice. And celebrities get away with murder. It's nice to live in a country where life, liberty, and all the rest of it still stand for something. Nicole Kidman is... To die for. In nineteen ninety five, I remember Dad parking outside a video store to drop off some movie rentals. It was dark and the windows were lit up with movie posters and my eyes were always drawn to the dark posters because they were the scary ones. The woman on this poster was lit in blue and taking off her clothes. She seemed to be coming out of the poster. The tagline read, all she wanted was a little attention. I thought, one day, I want to see that movie. Cut back five years and author Joyce Maynard was working on her second novel. A Yale graduate and freelance journalist, Maynard's first article was published in the New York Times when she was only 18 years old. She quickly garnered a reputation as a writer on the rise. An early admirer was J.D. Salinger. They had a brief, and according to Maynard, toxic affair in 1972, which she would detail in a memoir that would ruffle feathers some 27 years later. Around this time, a crazier-than-fiction murder plot was developing out of New Hampshire. Pamela Smart, a pretty 23-year-old media coordinator for a high school, was accused of seducing a student and manipulating him and his mates into murdering her husband of one year, Greg Smart. The Pamela Smart trial began in March 1991. It was one of the first to be broadcast by Court TV, which launched that year. The evidence, which included obscene photographs, wiretapped conversations and lurid testimony of underage sex, was laid bare before millions of riveted viewers. Smart conceded the affair but denied orchestrating the murder. She was found guilty and sentenced to life without parole. Court TV got a lot of mileage out of this and other cause celeb trials in the early 90s, raising the profiles of figures like Aileen Wuornos and the Menendez brothers. Its popularity would peak in 94 with the O.J. Simpson trial. 
Maynard was less interested in the smart case than she was in the coverage. In her novel, a series of commentaries paint a picture of Suzanne Stone, a manipulative narcissist who pursues her dream of television stardom with ruthless ambition. She wrote the novel in a white heat over two weeks. When the book was published in 91, it caught the attention of Laura Ziskin, co-producer of Pretty Woman. Ziskin sent the book to Gus Van Sant. Van Sant shared an agent with Buck Henry, known for writing The Graduate. Henry liked Maynard's book and wanted to work with Van Sant, so a deal was struck at Columbia. Henry would write, Ziskin would produce, and Van Sant would direct for $20 million. Now all they needed was Suzanne. Hi, my name is Suzanne Moretto. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> Suzanne Moretto is my married name. My own name is Suzanne Stone. That's my professional name. Suzanne Stone. Tadifel was released in 95, which was not a great year for actresses. The top 10 grossing films include no adult female protagonists, but do include Tom Hanks in Apollo 13, Bruce Willis in Die Hard with a Vengeance, and Pierce Brosnan in GoldenEye. Incidentally, the second highest grossing film of 95, another adventure headlined by a male star, featured Kidman in a small role as Dr. Chase Meridian, Val Kilmer's love interest in Batman Forever. Although it no doubt introduced her to a wider audience, she's given little to do except look amazing and lust after Batman. At least partly because of this, To Die For attracted attention from some major actresses, including Meg Ryan, who became Buck Henry's and Van Sant's first choice. Ever since when Harry Met Sally turned her into a household name, Ryan was known for her romantic comedies. Despite having shown range in grittier films like The Doors and Flesh and Bone, audiences liked her best in roles where she simply traded off her own goofy charm. It was a subversive casting idea, to see Ryan turn that charm into a weapon she wields against others. But it was risky in someone like Meg Ryan's position. That was less true for Nicole Kidman, who had done very little since moving to LA except fall in love. In Maynard's book To Die For, Suzanne contemplates which actress she might want to play her in a film adaptation of her story. She names Julia Roberts, then adds, or that actress that just got married to Tom Cruise. I can't think of her name. This pretty much reflects how a lot of Americans viewed Nicole Kidman in the early 90s. She wanted to die for but didn't have Meg Ryan's clout or studio support. Van Sant met her and didn't think she was right. Joyce Maynard thought she was too beautiful. Amy Pascal, executive at Columbia, was on her side. Buck Henry was harder to read. He was flirtatious and encouraging without throwing his weight totally behind her. In a 2002 interview for Vanity Fair, Van Sant recalled how shrewdly Kidman campaigned. She called him the same day he learned Meg Ryan had dropped out, which meant someone had fed her inside information. Then she became Suzanne, lifting words out of Henry's script. She had a very authoritative view on the whole story, he said and I just thought I shouldn't stand in the way of destiny. I mean, she might have a hand on destiny that I don't have. Matt Dillon was cast as Suzanne's well-meaning but oblivious husband. Matt Damon read for the part of Jimmy Emmett, the naive teen who commits murder. Van Sant liked him, but Damon was older, at 24, and too all-American to be a scrubby metalhead teenager. Then he heard Wacken Phoenix was interested in reading. Joaquin was the younger brother of River Phoenix, who'd passed away in a highly publicised overdose a few months earlier. Joaquin made the 911 call that was later leaked to the press and broadcast worldwide. Van Sant had worked with River on my own private Idaho, and could hardly believe Joaquin was ready to work. But the young actor channelled his trauma into a powerful audition that stunned the creative team. The studio wanted Damon, so Kidman and Van Sant threatened to quit if they interfered. Damon was disappointed, but he suggested his best friend's little brother Casey Affleck to play Russell, Jimmy's vulgar friend. Ileana Douglas beat out a who's who of emerging 90s stars when she scored the part of Janice, Dylan's sardonic truth-telling sister. Ellen DeGeneres, Sandra Bullock and Janine Garofalo auditioned. Production began in March 94, with time allowed for a small rehearsal period. The film shot in Canada to benefit from the lower exchange rate. The production team was kept busy dressing up each shot to make it look like New Hampshire. The first time Joaquin met Kidman, he told her she was hot in a stewardess kind of way. He and Casey formed a tight friendship and moved in together during production. The unstructured atmosphere on set gave the actors freedom to relate to each other and dig deep for nuance. 
Van Sant's loose style would stress Buck Henry, who was always on set doing rewrites. He would cut in when things got carried away and plead with Van Sant and the team to get back on the page. Shooting wrapped in June 94. The film went into limited release on the 29th of September 95. Four days later, 150 million people tuned in to watch the O.J. Simpson verdict, 57% of the entire country. I know that we've all seen To Die For before. I reckon we've probably all watched it together before, but I'd be interested to know what you guys, because it would have been, I reckon, a while since both of you have seen it. So what did you think of it this time? Well, you first introduced me to this movie, Luke. Um, I'm a big fan of Gus Van Sant. He's one of my favourite filmmakers. I think you can definitely draw a line between his more commercial films that started around this time and a little bit afterwards, so in the mid to late 90s, and his art house output, which came both before and after that kind of commercial period. And with his commercial films, he tends to direct scripts written by others, so films like To Die For, Goodwill Hunting, Psycho, Finding Forrester, Milk. And his art house output is obviously films that he writes himself. Uh, these would be films like My Own Private Idaho, Elephant, Paranoid Park. So those three that I just gave uh, an example of, those are three of my favourites of his, probably along with Goodwill Hunting. And Idaho and Elephant would be up there on my list of favourite films from anybody. And To Die For was the first film he'd made, four films previously that he'd written. To Die For was the first film he directed without writing. And I think that's why I find it to be quite a different experience than most of his other movies. It doesn't feel like the typical Gus Van Sant movie to me. Um, the typical Gus Van Sant movie feels like My Own Private Idaho or Elephant or Paranoid Park, something that's very contemplative. But I think that, you know, not being a typical Gus Van Sant movie is a good thing for a lot of people. I'd seen Goodwill Hunting before I saw To Die For. And uh, as I said to you, Luke, previously, that film is just an exceptional example of Hollywood filmmaking in so many ways. The dialogue and the performance especially. Uh, Robin Williams is just perfect in it. To Die For has some of that typical Van Sant darkness, that melancholy, which is something that Goodwill Hunting misses out on a little bit. So I guess in some ways, when I saw Goodwill Hunting, it was different enough from the rest of his output to look at on its own merits, and To Die For had some similarities, which meant that I always kind of compared it with other Gus Van Sant movies. And that said, I think To Die For is a really good film. I find it kind of excessively dark, despite its humour, but it does have some of those things that make Van Sant special to me, his treatment of youth especially. I think he's one of the directors that does this really well. And the script is also hilarious, and the performances are excellent, particularly Nicole Kidman and Joaquin Phoenix, and I think the cameos are all great fun too. Cass, what about you? I was surprised at how much the themes still seem so relevant now. I, I went to re-watch it after having not watched it for years and years, thinking, oh, what's it going to be like? You know, something that's so you know, focused on media and that mockumentary style and given how far we've come in terms of people being able to kind of, you know, now publish themselves on social media and it's so easy to become famous in, in some ways. I was kind of like, oh, I wonder how how this would translate to now. And in some ways it's so much of, you know, her character's flaws um, and the decisions she makes still feel like some of the behaviour we see now just kind of exaggerated in a way. Still really enjoyed Nicole's performance. And then even when I thought about everything she's done since, I feel like it still holds up as one of her most exciting performances. You know, all those sort of darker themes I picked up on more now, particularly around the way in which she grooms the the kids it was a lot more kind of uh, obvious to me this time. Whereas I think the first time that I'd seen it, I, I was kind of more wrapped up in the in West, the comedy of it. But this time I was like, oh God, well, this is this is pretty um pretty dark stuff. So um that kind of hit me more this time around. I hadn't seen a lot of Van Sant films and I saw a lot actually just in the lead up to doing this record. Last night I had a Gus Van Sant marathon and I did my own private Idaho, which I hadn't seen. And then I did Goodwill Hunting, which I hadn't seen since Cass, we watched it at the drive-in. So it was a brand new movie to me basically. And I liked both a lot, but um, I'd also watched Drugstore Cowboy, which I really liked. When Gus Van Sant gets to start, start shooting the kids that he's more at home that suddenly it feels more like a Gus Van Sant movie. It's something that's 
inherent in filmmakers like Gus Van Sant, who's a gay filmmaker, who I think Greg Araki is another great example of this, working with youth. Um, Larry Clark is another great example of that, even though Larry Clark's not gay. Those people, and I think Gus Van Sant especially, they tend to, I think, understand the weighty decisions, that heavy feeling you get when you're a kid and you have a secret. Um, And so they have an empathy towards young teenagers, young people, especially young males, uh, who I guess are forced to make uh, big decisions early in life. And they treat them with uh, empathy and respect. Gus Van Sant has definitely carried that throughout his career. So, I mean, he made Malanoche, he made uh, Drugstore Cowboy, he made My Own Private Idaho. And there's gay themes in those films about unrequited love, especially. But then he made these Hollywood movies that still deal with youth. So, To Die For, Finding Forrester, Goodwill Hunting, they still deal with young men. And then when he went back to his uh, writer-director efforts, films like Elephant, and Paranoid Park especially, those were, again, dealing with youth in a very empathetic way. It just seems to be his comfort zone. Uh, It's something that he does exceptionally well. I think you used the right word before when you said melancholy. And even though To Die For is satirical and upbeat, fast-moving, it sort of doesn't feel upbeat, it doesn't feel cheerful. Well, no, you wouldn't, you wouldn't describe To Die For as a comedy. It has comedic elements which drive a story forward, but there's certainly, I mean, there's horrific moments in some of the interviews, especially with Joaquin Phoenix and that scene where Suzanne takes Lydia to the shopping centre and uh, Lydia is wired. I mean, even the scene where Lydia comes to Suzanne's front door after the murder has occurred, all, all of those scenes are really quite awful to watch because you know that exactly what these young people, how, how deeply they feel their emotions. I never really gave a rat's ass about the weather. Until I got to know my Sumrado. Now, I take it very serious. If it rains, or there's lightning or thunder, or if it snows, I have to check off. Do you think Van Sant levels any blame on the young people at all? I think he shows very well that they have been manipulated, but... No, I don't think that he uh, goes out of his way to to show that they are, you know, worthy of the blame. Yeah, I, I don't think he levels any blame on them either. Yeah, I think it sort of definitely feels like he they're represented as highly vulnerable and, um, you know, having it under difficult circumstances. So, yeah, I mean, really, everybody in the film is just a pawn in Suzanne's game. Particularly because he shows these kids who've not had any attention, who who come from a place where uh, of neglect, of parental abuse, and you know, then along comes this clean woman, beautiful, manicured, clean woman who who they have an interest in. Their interests are different. For um, obviously Russell and Joaquin, it's sexual mostly, but for Lydia, she looks up to her as somebody she would like to be or like to emulate one day. Um, and, and Lydia's just so pleased to have her attention. Even Jimmy's sexual interest is, like, it's not something that we can dismiss. It, it feels very real to him. It is. It's, a, it's his first love. And I think, you know, what's kind of um, makes it more heartbreaking is I feel for all three of them, it's just the fact that they're getting some attention that makes them interested in her. You know, I, 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 I'm not sure that it's just related to the fact that she is so bright and colourful and, you know, engaging and charismatic, but because she shows interest in them and he just turns their world upside down, doesn't it? And then I guess, you know, the fact that they bring in the whole documentary style just amplifies that whole thing. I'm not only interested in you, but I'm capturing, you know, the things that you're saying, yes. and, you know, the stories from your lives, you know, it's just, it must, yeah, make, must make them feel amazing. All right, now, let's just say something uh, in general about ourselves. Like what? <laughs> like what are you planning to do with your future, Lydia? <sighs> I don't exactly have a plan. Well, you must have aspirations of some kind. What? <laughs> a dream, a life goal. Yeah, I can tell you that. Liddy's big life goal. Yeah. Just to fuck the new kids on the block. That's a daily life! Russell, 
I don't want to hear language <laughs> like that anymore. It is very offensive and it is unsuitable for broadcast under FCC regulations. You got that? It's interesting that you you say that, Cass, because there's the scene where she Suzanne says about Mikhail Gorbachev and if he'd just had plastic surgery, he would have stayed in power. And there's the uh, scene where she's at dinner with George Segal and she said, well, who did write the letter? You know, so it makes it has these really stupid moments there. So it's interesting that this person from a TV station came in and there was nobody apart from the, you know, the lowest of the low class of students who were interested in working with her so it kind of puts her in that same realm straight away even though she has these aspirations to be much higher i mean if she'd got interviews with some of the star sports people or the the smartest people in the school then i'm sure she would have gone with that but she couldn't get those interviews because none of those people were interested even though she does come in and she's colorful and she's bright and she's charismatic the film kind of takes her down a peg by putting her with these three people who are absolute no hopers the film is always sort of making fun of her and you know there's a couple of really obvious moments where it does that like when she doesn't get the george segal joke mm. Because her narration is taken from the film, the, uh, the film that she's shooting of herself, isn't it? Yes. So I heard that a, a good term for it was philosophic narration. Was what? Philosophic narration. So F-A-U-X oh, instead of philosophic right. narration. So it's all of this kind of fake, throwaway philosophical narration that she thinks is really kind of weighty. Eric Edwards, who photographed the movie uh called the you know he, he was talking about the different sorts of media and pieces of of uh film they use to tell their story and he called that particular one narrative encasement and that is sort of what it feels like it's like she's right there she's looking directly at you she's telling you her story and she's the narcissist and you're the supply you're the one listening to her feeding her ego so it puts you in this really uncomfortable position it's almost like this sociopath is getting something out of you simply because you're sitting there looking at her and there's nowhere else to look. It's really interesting we're at the end of that movie, we break out of that encasement and we just see this silly woman sitting on her couch popping out a, a tape recorder and she suddenly looks so pathetic after having looked so dominating in those scenes. It does give this illusion at the beginning that, well, she must have become somebody. Yeah. Only to be revealed that it was still just her own <laughs> creation. It's true that the road my husband and I chose to travel on was paved with many speed bumps. Larry said he would never stand in my way, whatever happened. But the word failure is not part of my vocabulary. My commitment to my career or my marriage or whatever has always been 110%. Regardless of how fast I was growing in my vocation, I would never leave Larry behind. The word divorce was never mentioned. Did you guys have this feeling when you were watching a watching it of this is so 90s i had that especially with the credits and the way that they were pulled together with all the tabloid and yeah 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 very that felt very 90s very jerry springer a lot of this stuff was really coming to a head at that point 91 92 93 obviously oj simpson in 94 it really cashes in on this growing infatuation with celebrity especially with true crime television also the advent of live courtroom TV, these live broadcasts that essentially made celebrities of the defendants, kind of happened as far back as the 1930s because of usual footage coming out of courtrooms, but it was few and far between, and then a lot of places uh, passed laws that disallowed cameras in the courtroom. But by this time in the early 90s, like information about courtroom cases had never been so immediate, and there's something really salacious about that. And To Die For captures that immediacy. It turns this dream of fame into kind of a lust for fame. And of course, lust being one of those seven deadly sins, it can lead to things like murder. So there's a darkness to that. We spoke in our last episode, Luke, on Streetwise about Cheryl McCall, and she'd interviewed and written about Klaus von Bülow. His retrial in 1985 was one of the first televised trials, and that came to be known as the crime of the century. And since that, there have been so many. Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas in 1991, the Rodney King beating trial in 92, the Menendez brothers who killed their parents in 93, Lorena Bobbitt in 94, even Pamela Smart in 1991, who this film is loosely based on, that was widely televised. One of the more appropriate examples, I think, and kind of in tying with Suzanne Stone is Amy Fisher and she shot the wife of her lover Joey Buttafuoco 
and she was sentenced to between 5 and 15 years in prison. She served seven years. In 1992, prior to her sentencing, a tape was leaked to hard copy the TV show, and in there, Fisher told another of her lovers at the time, this will keep my name in the press, I want my name in the press. And since her release from jail, Amy Fisher's done both interview and reality television specials with both Mary Jo Buttafuoco, who she shot, and Joey Buttafuoco, her ex-lover. So, you know, I guess celebrity trumps attempted murder. And then, as you say, uh, To Die For got really lucky when O.J. Simpson sped off in his Ford Bronco, wouldn't give himself up to police because that was televised live and everybody around the world watched it. And this was really the true crime of the century and became one of the most watched TV events of our lifetime. So when it came time to release To Die For, its commentary was honestly more timely than ever. And what is the commentary? If you look at it in that true crime context, it's it's just that people have some kind of... Fascination. Yeah, a fascination. It needs to be voyeuristic. Um, it doesn't matter what context we're viewing that in. I mean, all of this was just really five years before reality TV really took off with Survivor and Big Brother and those kinds of shows. But reality TV was also a thing, especially on TV networks like MTV, which had always been music stations, had started playing shows like The Real World. So, you know, you just sit down with a bunch of people and watch their lives play out. A few years after this, The Truman Show was kind of the result of that kind of reality TV. To Die For, as a commentary, is saying that it doesn't matter what somebody does to become famous, as long as they're doing something interesting, people will watch it. What happens in To Die For is, yeah, I mean, people would watch that on the news. People did watch that on the news. What are you going to do now, Mrs. Moretto? I'm going to go home and walk my dog. How are you going to address the questions? Will you take the stand in your own defense? Suzanne, did you get those kids to kill your husband? I mean, you, Luke, you spent many, many hours watching the entire trial of Casey Anthony. <laughs> yes, and Betty Broderick. <laughs> I've watched quite a few trials. They're great. They're all on court TV online. I think what's good about the movie is that it, it just shows how the media rewards behaviours like Suzanne's by just letting things unfold naturally. It doesn't have to push for any conceits. There's nothing in the film, at least in terms of the media's response, that's unbelievable. There were examples of it popping up all the time. There still are. Apparently, when they screened the film, they didn't have that title sequence that you mentioned, Cass. And people were confused. So then he went and got um, it done by two men named Pablo and Alan Farrow. And they put it together using these tabloid sequences. They actually wrote out all these articles. It sort of basically told the story. It tells the story before the story. It kind of holds up the props that tabloid uses, you know, sex, photographs, um, all this sort of stuff. And then we see behind those and what's actually going on. The um, title sequence was done so well for that kind of title sequence. So, so often in those things, you see them they just focus in on the headline and then they focus in on a few keywords. But like you say, they wrote entire articles. If you pause the Blu-ray, you could read the articles that they've written. As you were talking, it just made me think about what it, the film might be saying around how performative we are. Do we know who the real Suzanne Stone is? Like how much of what we saw was her always performing or, or being on? And I can imagine that that became, you know, amplified through reality TV and things like CNN becoming more kind of like an, you know, 24-hour entertainment <laughs> rather than the news, et cetera, at that time. But if I even fast forward to now and with so many people constantly being on Zoom and seeing their faces in the corner of the screen, I just wonder how much of the way we think and the way that we present ourselves has more of a performative nature than it ever did. There are some people who never know who they are or who they want to be until it's too late and that is a real tragedy in my book because i always knew who i was and who i wanted to be always even the news today as it's presented is a sensational thing i mean clickbait headlines online they get you to click they don't give you any information about something when real reporting it'll tell you the headline it'll tell you the story and then you go in for the details now with news you've got to click on the headline so that you can see some ads potentially subscribe to something so that you can read the story to get the details which at best are minimal anyway because journalism has become 
you know, a really bastardized industry. Yeah, and, and even using the mockumentary sort of style, the amount of, of this film that was someone speaking to camera, supposed to be, this is who I really am, right? That's supposed to be the allure of the style. And yet it's trickery. Social media these days and somebody like Suzanne Stone are very similar in that they're just taking control of their own narrative. And that narrative is never going to be 100% real. What you've touched on there is probably is the seed that germinated in Joyce Maynard that sort of went, okay, this is what this story is going to be. Because she said she was watching um, a broadcast of Pam Smart. This was before she was arrested and she was making some sort of, giving some sort of interview. And she was playing the role of grieving widow. And she said, even if that feeling is sincere, because she is on camera and she is aware that there are expectations, it is performative. Doesn't invalidate her grief. By Van Sant employing all these different, um, like, snatches of media to tell this story, you know, you consider not only Suzanne from all these different viewpoints, but you consider how these perspectives affect our feelings toward her and affect our judgment of her, and how can we ever get the whole story? And it's, and it's interesting because it's not quite a mockumentary because the storyteller is almost omnipotent, right? Because it, it can, it's showing us bits and pieces, CCTV footage, police interview footage, um, Oprah show for the parents, but then it will just suddenly show us a narrative scene that's following on from something that a character's mentioned. You know, they can pull from everywhere, even the fabric of time to show us something. And yet we still feel like at the end of the movie, we have... We have an idea of Susan, but we don't really know Suzanne. You gotta tell me what's wrong, please. James, do you think about me when we're not together? All I do is think about you. When I'm not with you, I'm not alive. It's in red on And you're the best thing that ever happened to me. I can't do this anymore. What? I go home every night and have him trying to touch me. And all the time I'm just thinking about you. How do we feel about that sexual relationship between Suzanne and Jimmy? I feel like he's a victim in that and that it's hard to watch in, in some ways. Um, just because I think, you know, I have a real sense of insincerity on her part, even, you know, putting aside the fact that he's, you know, young. <laughs> Um, and it's an inappropriate relationship. But, yeah, the fact that there's, it feels like there's sincerity on his part and insincerity on hers is, yeah, hard to watch. Do you feel like the film condemns her for it? Well, she gets the end she deserves. <laughs> <laughs> but she doesn't get the end she deserves because she's slept with a minor. No. He doesn't really get saved, does he? No. It's a, it's a poor ending for him. Yeah, he's in jail. Um, it was actually, I mean, going back to this idea of true crime, because it was soon after To Die For was released that we heard about Mary Kay Latorno, do you know her? No, I don't. She was a school teacher in Washington State and she began a sexual relationship with a 12-year-old student. And this case was very highly publicised, um, just like with Amy Fisher and OJ Simpson, Lorena Bobbitt before her. There was this kind of perverse feeling when we saw her gain some notoriety from this crime. And again, when she got out of jail, she reconnected with the victim. They end up getting married and having kids together. And the wedding was televised on Entertainment Tonight. Oh my God. <laughs> That's foul. How prescient of To Die For, because this film doesn't focus too much on the matter of pedophilia. It really just becomes another way for Suzanne to emotionally manipulate somebody else dumber than her to do her bidding. And likewise, Pamela Smart, who had sex with a 15-year-old, she also wasn't charged with having sex with a minor during her case. Wow. That would probably be because they're thinking, well, we're going to get her on the murder charge. And they did get her on that. Just to go back to what you were saying about the relationship between Jimmy and Mrs. Moretto, as he calls her. It's such a sad relationship. And one of the sad moments is when he calls her that after she's just been giving him oral sex. He's, I noticed he was still calling her Mrs. Moretto, which just shows how uneven the power dynamic was in that relationship. A lot of filmmakers are not sensitive to the limitations of teenagers. And I feel like this film is sensitive to that. You know, usually with teenagers, there's a knowingness in the dialogue. You can tell it's been written by somebody who knows more than the characters that they're writing for. And I feel like he makes them complex without making them mature. 
you do just feel like they're in this whirlpool and there's they really have no no chance against her. She outclasses them, she outages them, she's uh, more sophisticated than them and is advantaged in every way. I don't think there is justice for that. I think Jimmy's story is really sad. Seeing him at his age ending up in jail for life, you do feel like he is forgotten. Well, he's as much a victim as uh, Larry. No, Jim, no, do it. No, 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 please. No, wait, give me a ring. My ring? Give him. But man, I can't give you my ring. My wife will kill me. She'd kill you? Suzanne would kill you? And you know my wife? This is probably a bit of an icky thing to say, and I noticed this lately in a lot of Van Sant movies, but it's a bit of a sexy performance from Joaquin Phoenix. Or is that just me? He uh, <laughs> plays like that scene where she's manipulating him into getting the gun. I mean, he plays that scene kind of beyond his years uh, in a sexual way about how the body works, uh, you know, all of this stuff. But it, he is a phoenix, so who knows? He was probably well-versed in sex at the age of, like, he was 20 when he made this 19 there's a total lacking of self-consciousness in it it really he's shuddering and he really looks like he's forgotten the camera is is on him and he's in the moment and van sant obviously you know he photographs that in a very direct way as he always does he always photographs all all the young men in, in his movies that way i mean until goodwill hunting which is, it, it's an, it makes for a nice change, right? And I mean, Nicole Kidman is also um, photographed very sensually in this film. And I hate to be this person, but if that scene we're talking about was, if, if the sexes of the individuals were switched, do you think there'd be a different reaction to that relationship? I think it would be more difficult to have any sympathy whatsoever. And I don't think that it would be alleviated at all by you know, the male version of Suzanne's humour, you know, his stupidity, his ineptitude. I I think it would be much more difficult to watch. Yeah. I was thinking about why the movie's funny because I find the film really, really funny. She's always trying to impress everyone, but she's she never correctly judges her audience, ever. Like when she tells Janice to get a nose job or when she tells her mother-in-law that pregnancy is gross. She's not thinking about how these characters or these people are going to respond internally. Like when she tells Wayne Knight, I'm sorry for not giving you an exclusive. It's the first thing she says, and he's a bit like perplexed. Like, what are you talking about? The best one is when she plays all by myself at the funeral. That is the biggest cringeworthy moment. Everyone's having the same reaction and she doesn't realise it. She thinks they're having a reaction of, oh my God, this is so touching. She's lost everything and they're not thinking that at all. And what's funny is that she doesn't see how outrageous any of these things are. But, but those moments are when Suzanne is being honest. Those moments are when she's being upfront about who she is, but people just don't know what to do with it except kind of smile in bewilderment because it's just so awful. She has no self-awareness and it is very difficult to like people like that. It's difficult to be around people like that. I mean, the reason that they don't know what to do is because they don't want to be there. They don't want to be around her. She's um, not very bright, is she? She knows how to use everything at her disposal to get what she wants. Even when they show her having the family over for dinner and she lies about cooking the dinner. I mean, there's so many little manipulations that don't really mean anything, but they build up her character to be just somebody who not only will lie, but is largely incapable of doing anything, even those simple things. And she has pretty provincial taste. She's got the teased hair and the green eyeshadow. She definitely has a trashy vibe. She often will mention a politician, but she never, she doesn't know anything about politics. She doesn't follow the news. She doesn't ever talk about any journalistic skills. She only ever talks about politics in terms of, you know, what interview she'd like to get that would, you know, advance herself. And everything else is about aesthetics. And I think one thing that's disturbing about that is that she's not misguided there because I think mostly female television personalities, it's about aesthetics, right? Or was for a long time. It's almost like she just wants to put enough effort in to get everything looking as it should, just enough to get people to believe whatever it is she wants them to believe about her. But there's no need to invest any effort in the substance. 
Well, there's definitely no need when the substance is, you know, like Luke, we laughed last night when she said the name of her special. I believe it was during making my documentary Teens Speak Out. (laughs) Like that's, there's not a lot of substance to Teens Speak Out. She thinks she's doing like the greatest work that's ever existed, but (laughs) it makes it seem pretty dumb. But isn't it great that Nicole Kidman makes that little choice there to do it that way? It's so funny. What about you? Me? You think I look bad? No. What about the idea of kids? Is what I mean. I love kids. I absolutely love them. But a woman in my field with a baby has two strikes against her. I say I'm in New York, right? And I'm like, New York. Well, for instance, and I'm and I'm suddenly called to go on some foreign assignment, like a a royal wedding or a revolution in South America. You can't run from place to place with your crew following and conduct serious interviews with a big fat stomach. Or or say you've already had the baby and you've got this blubber, these boobs out the here. It's just so gross. It's interesting that the expectation of motherhood is what finally sets in motion her plan to kill Larry. And you see that in that Ice Follies scene where the, the parents get so excited about this idea that she might be pregnant. And I guess the other thing compared to other portrayals is you're not rooting for her to achieve her goal. Like it, with most movies, a protagonist wants something and you you want them to get that. You know, it's a good thing. But this character's going for something awful and also quite stupid and silly. It's a, it's a um, disordering of priorities, right? Like a fundamental one that's, you know, ugly to see manifested. The film flips it sometimes, like with the George Seagal scene. Um, that's when she suddenly is quite vulnerable and he reinforces a lot of things about her that are ugly. You know, he reinforces the idea that looks at everything, that you have to be able to do disgusting things to get ahead. The first half to admit, we, we didn't think too much of it, the relationship. I mean, here was our daughter, a college graduate, junior college, yes, but uh, with good grades and a degree in... Uh, Electronic journalism. Exactly. And here was this young man, a good boy, obviously, but still a boy whose education was limited to high school. And I remember saying to her, honey, honey, I'm worried that uh, you don't know what you're getting into with this kid. Dad, I'm not a little girl anymore. I know that, sweetheart. All I'm saying is that uh, we come from pretty different backgrounds. For all you know, his family could be mixed up with a mafia or something. I'm sorry, Joe. I, uh, problem, Earl. I was just being. I understand. Can we talk about the uh, talk show appearance? Because I think that is one of the most interesting techniques used in the film. You mean with the, with the parents? Yeah. So the the two sets of parents, Larry's parents and Suzanne's parents, being interviewed on this talk show, and it's not only because it's unusual, but it ties in so well with Suzanne's lust for fame. This idea of her obsession with true crime television. And the reason that I feel like this is such a really great scene is because if this film were real life, if this had occurred, it would have been the subject of numerous true crime documentaries and TV specials and everything. And such an interview would be a key piece of footage for fans of that genre. And so I think it's really interesting that To Die For put it in there as a centerpiece of this movie. It's also accurate because the parents would get a soft news morning afternoon program like Oprah which this is obviously predicated on instead of being on like hard copy or something like that so it feels like it's it's placed properly I really love the way it plays out because at this point in the film Larry is dead and his parents are sitting off to the right and then Suzanne's parents are off to the left and we don't know what's happened with Suzanne but she's missing at this point so Larry's parents know that she's dead Right, but, but Suzanne's parents don't know and they speak in such glowing terms of Suzanne at times during this TV special and it just feels so wrong but you hate her so much at that point like I'm so in that family's camp I hated the part where she brought up the cocaine thing and the dad smashed the television and so many families who, who where the villains do become these monster celebrities must go through that feeling but that's why I feel like it's 
it's kind of obscene watching her parents speak about her and, you know, oh, she loved this and she was very good at this. And it's like she's just killed the son of the other people that are sitting on this stage. Again, it just makes you, highlights the question everything you watch thing, right? Like as soon as someone knows that they're performing, who knows what you're going to get kind of thing. I also liked how most of them seem very uh, reluctant to be there and how they portrayed that particularly Larry's family. Yeah, they did that well. So, you know, they've got this person in their orbit that's desperate for the spotlight and they're dragged into it by virtue of, you know, being around her. Larry was, uh, he was so proud, you know, because Suzanne, she designed the wedding rings all by herself. You want me to describe them for you? They were round and gold. I mean, big fucking deal. The final shot of the movie is so smart. One reason why I love to die for is because it's a dark comedy that's successful. And I think all dark comedies are really tragedies seen through a detached lens. For all of Suzanne's issues, um, to have, you know, Janice skating over her frozen corpse at the end of the film and whether or not it's interesting are we meant to believe that take that literally I mean I don't at that point to me it feels more symbolic Janice's interview is done on the ice and then it brings up the scene where she gets the role in the ice follies and then the hitman murders her and murders Suzanne and puts her under the ice and then to bring Janice back at the end ice skating again I mean that story has been mentioned several times throughout the movie and that's what makes it brilliant I think I read how they'd been using a lot of cool tones and blues throughout the course of the film to foreshadow the ending that they really wanted that to wrap up nicely that's interesting that's true I didn't notice that but thinking back yeah that's definitely true To Die For debuted out of competition at the 48th Cannes Film Festival on May 20th, 1995. Another of Van Sant's projects, Larry Clark's Kids, which he produced, was screened as part of the competition but did not win the Palme d'Or. It opened in the United States on October 6th of that year, coming in fourth at the box office in its first full weekend. David Finch's Seven was the holdover at the top of the charts, enjoying its third consecutive week at number one. Two other new debuts ranked ahead of To Die For. Richard Donner's Assassins, starring Sylvester Stallone and Antonio Banderas, and the Hughes Brothers' Dead Presidents. Neither of these films were as good. To Die For stayed in the top 10 for three more weeks, eventually grossing $21.3 million. It was instantly Van Sant's highest grossing movie, thanks in huge part to its wide release and the star power from Nicole Kidman, two assets his previous films lacked. On Kidman's resume, however, it was dwarfed by previous releases Days of Thunder and Far and Away, both starring Tom Cruise, while also trailing smaller releases Malice, $46 million, and My Story, $27.4 million. While also trailing smaller releases Malice, $46 million, and My Life, $27.4 million. Kidman's other film from 1995, the much maligned Joel Schumacher comic book movie Batman Forever, was actually her new biggest hit to date. It opened earlier in the year in June and grossed a massive $336.6 million worldwide. It earned Kidman nominations in such esteemed award categories as MTV's Most Desirable Female and Favourite Actress at the Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards. To Die For, not Batman Forever, was the film for which Kidman finally received some critical acclaim. She won the Golden Globe for Best Actress, Musical or Comedy in a field that included Annette Bening, Sandra Bullock, Tony Collette and Vanessa Redgrave. She was nominated for a BAFTA for Best Actress but lost to Emma Thompson. In critics' circles, she was named a Best Actress by the American-Canadian Critics' Choice Association, the Boston Society of Film Critics, the London Critics' Circle and the Southeastern Film Critics' Association, and nominated by the New York Film Critics' Circle. She also won the Best Actress Award at the Seattle International Film Festival that year. The Golden Globe was the big one, though. It was the first of four she has won in the acting categories at the industry's second most glamorous night. The other wins were for Moulin Rouge, again musical or comedy, The Hours, drama, and most recently Big Little Lies, television. To date, she is one of two actresses to have won Golden Globes for a lead role in both drama and musical or comedy movies, as well as a television acting award. The other is Meryl Streep, big surprise. Reviews for To Die For were excellent at the time of release. 
Janet Maslin of the New York Times wrote that both Mr. Van Sant and Ms. Kidman have reinvented themselves miraculously for this occasion, which brings out the best in all concerned. Peter Travers for Rolling Stone wrote that To Die For, sparked by a volcanically sexy and rich comic performance by Kidman that deserves to make her an Oscar favourite, is prime social satire and outrageous fun. Roger Ebert for the Chicago Sun-Times wrote that To Die For is the kind of movie that's merciless with its characters, and Kidman is superb at making Suzanne into someone who is not only stupid, vain and egomaniacal, we've seen that before, but also vulnerably human. She represents on a large scale feelings we have all had in smaller and sneakier ways. She simply lacks skill in concealing them. Margaret McGurk for the Cincinnati Enquirer compared the timing of the film to current events. She wrote, Created long before the recent O.J. Simpson verdict, To Die For rings an eerie chorus of bells on murder, notoriety, ambition, slandered victims and most of all the distortions of the camera. This movie offers up a biting commentary on the lure of television, skewering the fragmented, scandal-driven industry of the 90s in the same way Network trashed the monoliths of the 70s. Owen Gleiberman for Entertainment Weekly, despite giving the film a B+, was a little more discerning in his praise, finding Kidman, Suzanne witchy and cartoonish. He instead focused on another performance, writing the movie's most memorable performance is also its most incongruous. As Jimmy, Joaquin Phoenix is dead-eyed yet touchingly vulnerable. Van Sant, the poet of gritty young lust, treats Jimmy's anguish with utter earnestness. My favourite was Harlan Jacobson for TV Guide, however, who wrote that, like Roseanne, Gus Van Sant refuses to compromise his trademark smarty pants assault on Sorry Book America. An openly gay filmmaker, he loves to tweak the condescending rhetoric of patriarchy. This time out, Van Sant emerges from subcultural territory to take on the middle class mainstream. Van Sant's sexuality played into a decision he made post-release. With the film holding concurrent premieres in New York and Los Angeles, the filmmaker had a decision to make about which one to attend. He said at the time, The New York premiere is to benefit the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, which makes it a bigger deal to me. This film is not a gay story, but I support the task force and its work in Washington and in politics. Let's do the quiz, guys. Who would like to go first? You pick. Okay. Luke, we'll start with you. Director Gus Van Sant later earned two directing Oscar nominations. For which films and in which years? Oh, good lord. Um, what is it? Goodwill Hunting in 97? Nearly 98. Uh, and, um, gosh, what else would he have got it for? Probably something like Finding Forrester? No. Damien? Was it Milk? Correct. Do you know what year? Uh, 2016? No. Oh. <laughs> 2008. 2008, yes. I was like half the 16 is what I was going to say, yeah. Um, well, I think, I think um, you get half a point for that. Damien, you finally turned feeble. Uh, Damien, when Nicole Kidman won the Golden Globe Award for her performance in this film, in her acceptance speech, she attributed her thanks incorrectly to someone. What error did she make? She mentioned that her boyfriend was Tom Hanks. <laughs> 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 Do you know Luke? No, I I did watch the speech, but I can't remember an error. So she thanked the person who created this role for me, Buck Henry. Oh, bugger. When in fact it was the novelist Joyce Maynard. Buck Henry was the screenwriter. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Luke, director David Cronenberg plays a cameo in this film. Which character does he play? He's the uh, assassin that works for Larry's family that kills her in the end. Correct. Damien. Ileana Douglas, who plays Janice or Janice, <laughs> sustained an injury while making this film. What happened and how did they subsequently weave it into the film? Oh, um, she sustained an injury. Gosh, I'm not sure. Maybe she twisted her ankle? Close, Luke, do you happen to know? She broke her finger and I think they just said that it was an injury she could have had because she, her character was in the Ice Follies. No, guys. Um, so she <laughs> she broke her thumb during the Larry Janice bar scene, like when they were doing that. You know, where he lifts her up in the behind the bar. Um, so they added the fainting scene after which she can be seen uh, wearing a cast. Who are we up to now? Me, Luke. Luke. Which actress in which two thousand and fourteen film cites Nicole Kidman's performance in this film as a key inspiration? 
Wow. <laughs> That's a tough one. I'll give you a clue. It's got connections to the Affleck family. Do you feel like you might know it? Or? No, I don't. It's too... Damien, do you? No, I've got no idea. It would probably be someone like Michelle Williams. It was Rosamund Pike in Gone Girl. <laughs> How does that have... Oh, because Ben Affleck, ben Affleck was in there. Ben brothers plays Russell. Sorry, can I just say that um, Emerald Fennell said that to die for when she was um, putting together Promising Young Woman, she sent Kerry Mulligan a bunch of movies and she sent them to the production team as well and to die for was one of them. Oh. Mm. So I think I'm winning. I'm on a point. You're on half a point, Damien. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Damien, I've got some easy ones at the end, but I added a few extra. Um, The purple lingerie that Nicole Kidman wears in a dressing room scene with Lydia was selected by her then-husband, Tom Cruise, true or false? True. Damien was false. <laughs> I totally made that up. I feel like he would be that controlling. See, I thought it was a good one to throw in as like, because I thought all my questions were easy, but oh, goodness, it really got that wrong, didn't I? Damien just didn't predict that you have such a perverse mind that you would even think of that question. Luke, how long did Joyce Maynard take to write the novel To Die For? Was it two weeks, three weeks, or four weeks? Two weeks. Correct. Um, And I have a final one. Joaquin Phoenix's sister, Rain, can be seen in this film. What does she play? And the way I've worded the question at the end is a clue. What does she play? Is she um, playing an instrument in the interview with Lydia, maybe? No, close. She's the tambourine player in Larry's band. Ah, okay. That's great. God, they had some weird fucking names, didn't they? Yeah, Rain. River, River, Rain, Leaf. Joaquin. So is Leaf his birth name or did he... Joaquin was his birth name, but he was called Leaf growing up and then he he reverted back. Um, Apparently because River Phoenix told him to. Oh, congratulations, Luke. You won the quiz. Thank you. I'm having such a... I've not won a quiz for so like over a year. That's probably the dementia, Damien. But the thing is you know so much... So then you preclude half the quiz questions we could possibly write because you, like, have so much knowledge about the film before we even get to Cass, the Cass, that is so nice of you to say and such bullshit. No, it's not. <laughs> Take the compliment, man. <laughs> Suzanne used to say that you're not really anybody in America unless you're on TV because what's the point of doing anything worthwhile if there's nobody watching? So when people are watching... It makes you a better person. So if everybody was on TV all the time, everybody would be better people. But if everybody was on TV all the time, there wouldn't be anybody left to watch. That's why I get confused. I started this podcast by talking about being 11 and seeing the poster. And I knew I wanted to see the movie before I was at an age where I would have understood it, before I had access to it. But seeing Nicole Kidman, I almost had a Suzanne moment, not where I was like, I want to become a celebrity, but it was my first moment where I felt that pull that we have as people who love certain actors and certain celebrities. And that never went away. Like Nicole Kidman became somebody that I love, have loved my whole life. And maybe in part because I had that moment sitting in the car looking at that poster. And I guess that that's why for me to die for him, because I've seen it so many times, it's very hard to be objective. Uh, but I really, really love it. A big part of being a big fan of this film is Nicole Kidman's performance for me. You know, had loved her in Dead Calm even before that. You know, these, you know, just seeing glimpses of this Australian um, woman who was making, you know, interesting films and then going to the US. And I think this is one of her first films where she was American accent for the whole time. And I know there was something very kind of, I felt very connected to it and excited about it. And for it to, such, to be such a interesting female character and that was, you know, more unlikable was just fun. Um, and yeah, really exciting, different film um, to see. And even watching it again all these years later, still relevant in so many ways. And I was really impressed by that. I didn't expect that in the rewatch for making this podcast. So yeah, I'd also review it really highly and give it four stars. It's a really fun film. I give it four stars. I'll just say that straight off the bat. It's not my favourite Gus Van Sant and it's not really close to being at the top, but it's also not close to being at the bottom. He's made some terrible films as well. Some of the things that make his film special for me are in this movie, and apart from that, it's just a really fun movie. 
I mean, I do really like Nicole Kidman in it. I think she's, um, I think she's excellent. I like the story that it ties into this this idea of true crime and that is a crime film itself. The black comedy. I think some of it's really successful. So yeah, that's how I feel about it. <laughs> All right, Damien, you want to sign us off? Yes, thank you so much, Luke and Kaz for being here this podcast was to die for (laughs) join us next time when uh, we will be talking about with the uh, new release the release of his new movie we'll be talking about Sean Baker's 2017 film one of my favourites of recent years The Florida Project my gosh okay get my box of Kleenex out Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it is one of those movies. We're staying with the youth theme that we've had for Streetwise to Die For now, The Florida Project. <laughs> Have you seen it, Cass? Yeah, absolutely loved it. It was the best film of that year, I think. All right, guys, well, I'll catch you then. See you then. Bye. Ileana Douglas beat out a who's who of emerging 90s stars when she scored the part of Janice. Of- Janice. <laughs> when she scored the part of... <laughs> <laughs> That's Kath Day Knight's movie podcast. <laughs> The Rail of Janice. <laughs> <laughs>